I know that uh, a lot has happened uh, over the two weeks that my family and I were gone. A lot has happened nationally. Uh, But I want to start my first sermon or first sermon series of the year by talking to you about 15 miles. I want you to draw a circle, and in the middle of that circle is this church. And so 15 miles uh, around this church, we're going to hit a little bit of Brady, a little bit of North Platte, all of Maxwell. And I want you to think about the fact that within that 15-mile circle, there's going to be somebody who has recently lost a job. Somebody who is an alcoholic. Somebody who's a teen mom. Within that 15 miles, you're going to find children whose parents are either divorced or on the verge of divorce. You're going to find, statistically, at least one young girl who is being abused. And from the statistics in our area, we're even going to find children who have very, very little knowledge of who Jesus is. In that 15 miles, we're going to find people who are mourning. Tomorrow, I'm going to do the graveside service of Ivan Nickerson. You heard me pray for them. They've buried two family members now, or will tomorrow, have buried two family members in 14 days. You're going to find people who are dealing with enormous amounts of mental anguish, physical pain. And of course, in that 15 miles, you're going to find teenagers, you're going to find adults who do not believe in Jesus, who are not Christians, who are not saved, however you want to put it. You're going to find some who aren't and think they are. Of course, within that 15 miles, we're also going to find members of this church. Members who are grieving, parenting, being married, and have co-workers that drive them crazy. Now, I figured out if I stayed here for the rest of my life, if I pastored at this church and only this church for the rest of my life, I still would not be able to minister in every possible way in those 15 miles. Because, of course, this church's reach goes beyond those 15 miles, which, of course, then creates an avalanche of these same things that I have mentioned. So I'm going to ask you this morning and for the next few mornings to put everything happening outside of those 15 miles out of your mind. I want you to focus on these 15 miles as we talk the next few weeks about ministry. Now, ministry is, of course, something every Christian is called to do. It's simply the act of bearing a burden. Some of those burdens are light, like letting somebody borrow $20 to put a little bit of gas so they can get to their last day of work. Some of those burdens are fun and challenging, like teaching a children's class. And some of those things are very, very heavy, like weeping with those who weep. When we minister, and the only way we minister, is when we take all of the things that are going on in our life. Of course, we have marriages, and we have parenting, and we have physical issues, and maybe some financial struggles, and maybe some personal problems. But when we minister, what we're saying is is we're going to take all of this stuff that is already going on in our life, and I'm going to reach over here, and I'm going to see the need that is going on in this life. I'm going to add it to my pile. You see, there's never a moment where you're going to be able to say, Pastor, 
there's just too much going on in my life to minister because ministry is taking all that's going on in your life and adding somebody else's to it. So this morning, for the first lesson, I guess you could say, I want to talk about ministering to the needy. I'm talking about specifically people who are in need of mercy. They need to be rescued or they need to be relieved of some sort of consequence in their life. For example, I mentioned within the 15 miles we're going to find an alcoholic. Let's say that alcoholic spent all his money on booze and cannot pay his rent. He needs to be rescued from his consequences. Consequences that, of course, came because of a decision he made. But within those 15 miles, we're also going to find people who, because of disease, like a pandemic, or maybe a loss of a breadwinner in their household, they don't have the ability to pay the rent. They need to be relieved from a consequence that was outside of their control. And the Bible says both types of people, those who need to be rescued, those who need to be relieved, both qualify as the needy. Our text this morning, as you see, is out of the book of James. Uh, James is a little bit different of a book. It's not structured like a letter. It's really more like the copy of a sermon. A sermon that has three basic points to it. James wants to tell us that Christians are to be patient. Christians are to pray. And Christians are to help others. And is underlying the kind of the beat of the sermon is we do these things in spite of the circumstances in our lives. So we Christians have to pray for others and for things going on despite what's going on in our lives. We have to be patient despite what's going on in our lives. And we have to help others despite what's going on in our lives. And so here in chapter 2, we're going to focus on that third point. James is going to bring our attention to the need of helping others. And he's going to answer some questions for us this morning on what that means. So I have three points for you. They're all going to be in question form because we're going to answer some questions today. Number one, why do we minister to the, to the needy? Number one, why do we minister to the needy? Now, here in James chapter 2, the context is partiality. If you don't know that word, it's meaning you're going to look at somebody and treat them differently than somebody else. James uh, gives us an example. Somebody comes and visits your church on a Sunday. They walk in wearing uh, Tommy Hilfingers, all their... Hilfingers, that was terrible. Um, All their kids walk in wearing the newest Jordans. They're obviously what? Not poor. In fact, James, the, the description he gives in the text is actually likely somebody of position. So somebody who walks in, probably who works for the government or perhaps owns a lot of land or a, a business or somebody who was born into wealth. The, the point is, by outward appearance, it's clear who they are. And these are the kind of people that immediately the church says, oh, we're glad you're here. Why don't you teach a Sunday school class? Why don't you serve on this committee? Why don't you join me for lunch? And that's the reaction to their arrival. But then James gives us a second scenario where there is a visitor for church 
And they walk in, and it's clear, he calls it vile raiment. You think of that word vile, what do you think of? Something that disgusts you. It's the idea that they walk in, and by your sight, you're disturbed by what you see, perhaps disturbed by what you smell. But by outward appearance, they are not what? They're not wealthy. They are needy. Now, James's point is not that they're being treated badly. The point is, is they're basically being treated as if, as if they have nothing to contribute. They're basically told, go sit in the pew, please be quiet. Make sure that uh, you know you're welcome, but we're, we're not going to ask you to serve on a committee. We're not going to ask you to teach Sunday school. Nobody's inviting you to lunch. And James is calling them out for this kind of an attitude. He's saying, first of all, in verses 1 through 5, he says, there's a theological problem with this. The Lord of glory saved you, a poor sinner. He showed you mercy, saved you from the consequences of sin. In 2 Corinthians 8, the Bible says, when we grasp the idea of substitutionary atonement, Christ's death for our sins, it immediately should spring forth in generosity for the needy. We were poor. Jesus made us rich. He was rich and became poor so that we could be what? Rich. So treating the poor differently doesn't make anything, any sense theologically. It doesn't match up to what we confess. But then he moves on. He goes to verses 6 and 7. He gives us a practical application. Why do you fawn over the wealthy? His idea would be here is that, that it'd be pretty cool if the president of the United States decided to come to our church. They'd probably get asked to sit on a committee or two. But he says, wait a minute. It's the people in those positions that are often responsible for the persecution of your brothers and sisters. Why would you favor them? It doesn't make any practical sense. But then he lastly, he says, this doesn't make any sense doctrinally. He says, wait a minute, the Bible tells us to love our neighbor. Now, here is where James is going. Look, geographically today and geographically back in James's time, more Christians live near who than who? More Christians live near the poor than they do the rich. And so James is saying, wait, if you're going to fulfill the teaching, the doctrine of loving your neighbor, you can't reach past your poor neighbors in order to reach your rich neighbors. So it doesn't make any sense doctrinally. So the question then we ask is, why do we minister to the needy? And James is saying, because it is the most theological, it is the most doctrinal, it is the most practical application of gospel truth. At the center of Christianity is the gospel. The center of the gospel is this truth. God sent his son to save people who could not save themselves. The God of the universe showed unbelievable mercy, rescuing people from the consequence of their sin. In fact, if you go all the way back to the beginning of your Bible, begin to read. This actually comes up a lot. For example, if the people of God are rescued from the nation of Egypt, they're brought into the promised land, what does God say to them? 
He says, now that you've been rescued from the poverty of being enslaved to the Egyptians, and now that I've given you this riches of the promised land, remember the poor. And then we get into the New Testament, and the Bible says to us, now that you've been given the riches of Christ, you've been rescued from your poverty outside of Christ, given the riches of Christ, now that those things are true, remember the poor. And it means that, that when we remember the poor, it, it means that it doesn't matter if their poverty or their neediness comes out of a sinful decision or because it came out of something outside of their control. It doesn't matter if we minister to the needy and they're not thankful because how often are we not thankful to God? And it doesn't matter if our showing mercy doesn't actually change anything. For God loved the world and the vast, vast majority will never love him back. So why do we minister to the needy? Well, the word essential got thrown around a lot last year, didn't it? Ministry to the needy is an essential ministry of a church that says it believes the gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot be avoided. It has to be there if you're going to be a gospel New Testament church. Which brings me to my second point this morning. And to the second question we must ask, how then should a church minister to the needy? Number two, how then should a church minister to the needy? I want to start by looking at verse 14. He asks the question, what does it profit my brethren... Though a man may say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? Now, I wanted you to note two things immediately. First of all, he's speaking to a group. He's not speaking to an individual. He's saying to them, they have a confession. They say out loud, this is what they confess to believe. We believe that salvation is by faith. Somebody else rescued us. But he also wants you to understand that this group has this confession. Go down to verse 18. He says, look, a man may say, so he's calling the question, there, there can be, you can, you can speak these confessions, but there can be a difference between what you confess and what you do. You see, the issue here is not a question of whether or not faith saves. It's not a question about faith alone saving. He's saying that ministry to the poor is supposed to be an inevitable outcome of genuine salvation. Now go back to verses 8 through 12. There's two key phrases here. In verse 8, he says, you do well. And then in verse 9, he says, you commit sin. That's the whole history of the people of God right there. At times in the history of the people of God, we do well. And at times in the history of the people of God, we commit sin. And another thing the Bible teaches us is 99% of the time, God's people are absolutely the worst at judging whether or not they're doing well or committing sin. For example, James brings up the issue of the royal law. What does he mean by that? He means it's the commands of the God of the universe. Do we get any higher politically than God? Yes or no, class? No, it is the royal law. It's the law above all laws. And James says there's times in the history of God's people where we look at the royal law of God and we go, not a big deal. I can disobey. God's not worried about that. 
And James is saying there are times when we forget that the law passed down to us, the commands given to us by God, are what? They are a royal law. It's a big deal to disobey God. But then he comes along and he says, make sure we also remember, though, that we're judged by the law of liberty. Now, wait a minute, James. Is it the royal law or is it the law of liberty? His point in calling it the law of liberty is this. God's grace or God saves God's salvation always, always, always. Do you get a class? Always. There is no exception to what I'm about to tell you. God's grace, God's salvation always, always, always comes before he expects people to obey his commandments. It is the law of liberty. You have been set free. And so the idea here that James is pointing out is, look, when it comes to ministering to the needy, for example, because that's the example he's using here, it's a big deal to disobey God. So when a needy person comes along, as he'll give us an example here in a moment, we are to be obedient and do what? Minister to the needy. But then he's telling us, because we have come under this law of liberty, we have been set free, so we go looking for opportunities to minister to the needy, not because we want to earn something from God or we don't want to earn God's smile. We're free to do it because we already have God's smile. So how should a church be ministering to the needy? First of all, out of obedience. So every situation that presents itself, we have to obey. And then also out of liberty, meaning we go and we look for the opportunities to do so. So if we're going to be a people who confess salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, mercy ministry has to be a normal part of our church. The question then is, are we like the apostle in Galatians and respond to this news by saying we are eager to remember the poor? Let me give you some examples of things that are going on in our church. We financially support the Women's Care Center. Now that means we use it as a conduit to minister to women who find themselves pregnant in difficult situations. Some of those situations are because they made bad decisions or sinful decisions. And some of those situations do come because of consequences outside of their control. They're provided health care, they're given parenting classes, and even physical resources like diapers. Now, if we, or as a New Testament gospel-living church, are going to use them as a conduit for mercy to the needy, I'm going to suggest to you this morning, we need to do, be, be doing a little bit more than just sending them money. We could do a little bit better showing up for the Walk for Life. There's a number of volunteer opportunities over the year. We could probably fill one or two of those. Or let's talk about the Deacon's Fund. I've told you this primarily goes to helping people in our church, sometimes people locally. Often it's to help people with food or shelter or fuel. Let me share a secret with you that's probably not a very big secret. The people who come wandering through our village looking for food or shelter or fuel are often looking for food or shelter or fuel because of sinful decisions. And I would even tell you this. 
in my seven, almost seven years here, the vast, vast, vast majority try f- to find some way to lie to me thinking they can get money if they just tell me the right story. I can't tell you how many of them come along and tell me how their grandfather, their grandmother, their cousin, their aunt, all were preachers. And we're, I'm just trying to get back to, to my, my preacher auntie in Indiana. Or they tell me all about the fact that they went out west and they had a construction job with their cousin Lou. And cousin Lou's a terrible guy and he drinks too much so now they're trying to get home. You know what we do? We help. We help the needy. We, of course, help people who have mercy needs because of job loss, because of health scares, because of a host of other consequences due to things outside of their control. And I would say this to you. There are 5,000 needs. In the vast majority of the year, the Deacon's Fund has five loaves and two fish. I'll give you one more. One of the ways we minister to the needy in this church is on our Thanksgiving dinner, we deliver meals. Now, this past year, I think 32 meals went out. And I'll be honest, a few of those were delivered to people who simply just couldn't be here, who wanted to be here. I would tell you, though, that most of those meals went to people who needed to be shown mercy. To struggling moms, to people facing health challenges, and to people who didn't have the time, the resources, or the ability to make a homemade meal like the one we brought them. A few of you have brought this up. Why don't we do this at another time in the year? Well, why don't we? Brings me to number three. How should you and I be ministering to the needy? So we're getting out of the corporate range of the church. We're getting down to the individual. How should you and I be ministering to the needy? Now, to close out the section, James gives us two individual examples of genuine faith. Now, I love James, particularly because he's a preacher. And one of the things that preachers love are to play with words. And he does a wonderful little word play here. I hope you find it as fascinating as I do. The first thing he does is he comes to verse 19 and he gives us this phrase, you do well, the demons believe and what? Tremble. The idea there is he's saying their confession of belief in God does not bring peace. They believe, they've, they've heard the message, but, they, but they, their, their faith is dead on arrival. Now in verse 23, Abraham is described as what? A friend of God. So the contrast is that the demons believe and they tremble. There's no peace. Abraham, though, believes, and he's called the friend of God. What was missing? Well, that's the explanation of verse 21. Abraham trusted God. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that when he went to sacrifice his son Isaac, the Bible tells us that Abraham believed that God could even raise Isaac from the dead. It it, It was that act of trust that made Abraham's faith alive. And then secondly, he gives us another example with Rahab. Now, she's going to be compared to the person speaking in verse 16. Go back to that. The person says to those in need, be warm and filled, sends that person away cold and hungry. 
So the end result of that person's confession of faith is that people who are cold and hungry remain cold and hungry. But then you go to Rahab. She received the spies. And after receiving them, he gives this little wordplay. She sends them another way. You see in both scenarios, in verse 16, and then later with Rahab, both people are sent away. Except over here in verse 16, they're sent away cold and hungry. But Rahab, she's sent away the spies by a different way. It's a wonderful little play on words, meaning Rahab's faith resulted in cold and hungry people showing up and going away warm and filled. It was not a faith that was alone. So how should we be as individuals ministering to the needy? As the friends of God, so we trust him. So you say, you know what, I, I, I need a little bit of money to put gas in my tank, but you know I can spare $10, and I, I'm going to trust the Lord to provide a little bit more for me. So as the friends of God, you know, he's my friend, I know he's going to take care of me. And then secondly, as the hands of God, as Rahab was. As First John tells us that nobody sees God, but God dwells in God's people and can be seen by their expressions of love. So how should you and I be ministering to the needy? Well, the first application is the simplest one. Fill a need. If you know a kid who needs a winter coat, this is easy, class. What do you do? Buy the winter coat. All right, you know somebody who needs a hot meal? It's easy, class. What do you do? Bring them a hot meal. This is not hard. And you say, Pastor, I don't know anybody like that. And it needs like that. You come tell me that, and I will ferret you out some. Or better yet, go over to the school, get your temperature taken, then go ask one of the secretaries to ask the teachers if they know of any needs. Guaranteed, you'll have more than you can handle. But what about those moments... Or those things that don't cost any or little or no money. It's ministry that is personal. If you want to minister this way, that means you're probably going to end up babysitting a kid who's going to break your stuff and draw on your walls. It probably means you are going to have to figure out how to deal with the awkward silence of driving somebody you don't know well to a doctor's appointment. Or there's opportunities, like I mentioned, with the Women's Resource Center. Or I would give you one more, the, what I would call the organic option. Let's say you're sitting at your table or you're taking a shower. Some people just do amazing thinking in the shower. You know what? I have this great idea. And so you think, well, let me go ask Pastor Tim about it. And you sit down in my office and you say, Pastor Tim, I got this great idea. I want to check and replace every light bulb for every widow in our church. And I go, Great. And then they'll say, but I don't know who all the widows are, and I might not have enough money for all the light bulbs. And I'll say, I'll, I'll give you a list, and I'm sure the deacons can spare a little bit for a little ministry like this. Why do I call it organic? Because there's no need in that moment to start a uh, this little light of mine ministry. You can do this. And don't be afraid to say, you know what, I just need a little bit of help. I had this great idea, just a little bit could get me moving along. 
Or you might say, Pastor Tim, this year I think it'd be great if we did a a, 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 a project angel tree. That's where you put name, kids get names on a uh, on a tree, and you take the name. Typically, those kids have a, a parent that's in jail. And I say, yeah, that's great. You can you can take care of that. I'll give you as much support as I want or, or as you need. Or you say, you know what? Maybe I could talk to somebody. I'm really good on the phone. Do you so, know somebody who's in a hospital or a nursing home or just somebody who's lonely, Pastor Tim? And I say, you have a paper and pencil? This isn't hard. And so it brings us back to the question. Are we doing what we can do as people who confess the gospel of Christ? When it comes to ministering to the needy, we understand that all of us have burdens we're already bearing. All of us have issues. All of you have issues. I have issues. But we still choose to minister. It is the most logical, it is the most reasonable conclusion for a people who believe that Jesus saves sinners. It is about being obedient to the opportunities, to taking our freedom and going to look for those opportunities. And it is about a world who right now is very confused about who God is. They're very confused about what he is like. And the Bible says that we can show who God is and we can show what he's like by acts of love, including ministering to the needy. Which is why the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6, they told me to minister to the needy, a thing I was eager to do. 15 miles. All of that can be done in 15 miles. Let's pray. Father, I pray you would help us have a kinship with the needy, for they are physically what we were spiritually before Christ. And I pray, Father, we'd rise in us a generosity, a, a desire to show mercy when we can, and to go looking for opportunities to show mercy when we can. I thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to come back to your word and be reminded of these things. In Jesus' name, amen.